Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father, and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. I want us to read a little bit from Acts chapter 20 on the first day of the week. So the Apostle Paul, he's been traveling all over the place. He's got his trusty travel companion, Luke, with him. And Luke is writing all of this down. Luke is writing the book of Acts as he's journeying with Paul, as they're going all across the known world, preaching the gospel. And on the first day of the week, which on our calendars would be Sunday. I know often we think Sunday is the last day of the week. It's actually technically the first day of the week. When we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. And I love this story. Kind of actually just want to read that bit, but I'll read the rest as well because it's just one of those fun stories in Scripture. Intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So we today often complain when somebody speaks, you know, for 46 minutes. You know, it's a bit too long. But Paul was happy to preach until midnight. But there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank in a deep sleep. I've had some people fall asleep when I'm preaching. And this heartens me because they fell asleep when Paul was preaching too. And so, I mean, that's just crazy for me to think. If we think of the Apostle Paul with all his signs and wonders and people fell asleep when Paul was preaching. So if you really want to fall asleep, go ahead. It will make me feel very apostolic this morning. And so this guy falls asleep. As Paul talked, still, so this is after midnight, and Paul is continuing. He is not rushed at all. He is comfortable just teaching and preaching and teaching. And I wonder sometimes if we were sitting there, would we be irritated or would we be, Paul, please teach more. You're leaving tomorrow. We want to press this sponge dry before we go. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Just a reminder that the guy writing this is a doctor. He isn't making a mistake thinking, oh, he looked dead, but he actually just bumped his head. This is a a doctor looking at the situation saying, the guy died. He fell down from three stories, and he was dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him up in his arms, said, do not be alarmed. His life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread, and eaten, he conversed with them a long while. This is after midnight. The guy is dead. This is one of those eventful moments. Hey, we've got a visitor from Kimberley or Cape Town. Welcome, John. And the guy's dead. Paul lifts him up, and then he talks more until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. One of those crazy stories that we can just glimpse over in, in Scripture, and this is, I mean, there's so much encouragement, but, you know, I try and live myself into the story when I read Scripture. I want to kind of imagine if I was there, what would I have done? And this is one of those stories where kind of you can stop for a while, and, you know, this is a whole movie almost in two or three verses. I want us just for a moment to see this thing that happens on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break and what we see here is that the wording, it, it seems to be that this seemed to be a custom, a normal thing that would happen on the first day of the week. Breaking bread in, 
Scripture can apply a couple of things. Breaking bread practically means eating together. The idea was that normally they would have bread as part of the meal, and the bread would be broken, and that would be the start of the meal. And so whenever we read the idea of breaking bread in Scripture, it implies a meal. It can also imply more than a meal. It can apply, imply the Lord's Supper. Bread, and in fact, eating is a recurring theme in most of our lives probably and in Scripture. We see the Passover feast at the start. There was a meal. Adam and Eve and the big mess up, it started with eating the wrong thing. Eating from the tree of good and evil, but then also the, oh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was also the tree of life and eating from that. We know one day we're going to be back in heaven and we're going to be back with the tree of life and we'll eat the fruit. There was manna in the wilderness. There were all of these sacrifices which involved eating. Sacrifices of the, and various animals and many of them, there was a, an eating element to it. We know that Psalm 23 says that God prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. It's not a study table, it's a dining table. Jesus, he's fasting for 40 days, and then there's a temptation to come and to turn a rock into bread. And once again, there's bread and there's eating. We know we will not live by bread alone, but we're going to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You can go and read John chapter 6. I wish we had time today to dig into that passage where Jesus says he is the bread of life. And so throughout Scripture, we have this idea that eating is important to God. That eating isn't just something that we do on the way somewhere rushing. Jesus goes to the woman at the well and his disciples come and they say, yeah, we have food for you. Kind of, we just been to Kentucky because we didn't have food. We went away. And Jesus said, when you guys were away, when you went to go get takeaways from the local bakery or whatever, I have food to eat, which you do not know. So eating, this dining thing is, is a recurring theme. And it's so important, I believe, in our lives because God has made it so. It's interesting then that Paul breaks bread. They come together to break bread. And then the boy falls down, and then Paul goes and he does two things. He breaks bread, and he eats. And the implication from many scholars seems to be that, obviously, context is king, as we teach you in Bible school. You know, context is so key, the wording, the situation around it. Paul is breaking bread, and he is eating. And the implication seems to be that the first one in that context refers to the Lord's Supper. The first one is we're eating a special type of meal. It's not just a meal we'll see in a moment, and we've eaten. We've done both, and that's why the, the wording is so deliberate there. We see a similar type of thing happening in Acts chapter 2 when we're reading about the early church, the church in Jerusalem. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, something the early church did often was they would break bread together. And the prayers. I'm reading from the ESV today. Um, I'm deliberately not using sort of one of the more easy to read translations because they seem to miss a little bit of the nuance that's hidden around this. They typically just talk about the Lord's Supper. 
And while breaking bread implies the Lord's Supper too, it is more than just the Lord's Supper. All came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I just quickly want to pause there. Just two things just about that while I'm thinking about it. The first one is I know many of you have given towards Ukraine. I want to say thank you so much. We received some videos from our pastor friends in Ukraine during the week. We will post them on our WhatsApp updates group um, just as an encouragement for you. It's amazing. The one guy, he says God spoke to them a couple of weeks ago. Um, this is before the war started. Uh, that they must begin to, like Joseph, gather stocks, build a storehouse. And they went and they found a place. They looked all over. Eventually, they found a place which they could use. And they were able to store up a bunch of food and nappies and clothing and hygienic stuff. And even those of you who donated, they've been able to add to that to be able to distribute as necessary. And that's specifically the, the pastor in Kiev. So thank you so much to those of you who have been giving of your possessions in that way. And then also as a church, I just want to say thank you so much for the way that you guys have continued to give financially. We haven't taken up an offering since before the 26th of March 2020 when lockdown started because the rules at that time didn't allow it and we just never got back to it. But so many of you have continued to give and I want to say thank you for that. A couple of you every week come and ask, how do we give and we're trying to figure out how can we bring that back into our service in a, in a healthy way. What is God leading us around that? Um, but what we're probably going to remain for the next while is try and be cash-free, just because it's safer for everybody. We are also in quite an accessible spot here, which is great. It's fantastic, but we just need to be wise around that as well. So we want to ask that if you want to give, there is a snap scan thing outside. Most banks nowadays you can just scan or just do an EFT, the banking details are um, posted around, and you can continue giving in that way. But the early church was incredibly liberal in their giving, just like many of you are. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We see Paul in the first passage in Acts 20, the church that they seem to come together on the first day of the week to have a meal together. We see the church in Jerusalem that would come together in large groups at the temple, but they'd also have meals together in their homes. Jesus left us with two ordinances. Some people call them sacraments. There's a technical difference between the two. We don't have to get into that today. But Jesus left us with, in a sense, two holy activities. The first one is baptism. It was so great just speaking about baptism yesterday. Just immersion in water. It's a holy moment. It's something which we should not take lightly. And the second one that he left us with is the eating of meals and a specific meal together. The way he did it was in Matthew 26, as they were eating. This is, for those of us who are not familiar with the story, Jesus has just lived his whole life on earth, about 33 years. For the last three years, he was actively going around, ministering to people, preaching to people, seeing people get healed, helping people understand who God is and 
the Father and demonstrating the Father's heart and His love towards them. Right at the end of this, He's about to be betrayed. He's about to be crucified. He knows what's coming. And He calls His 12 best friends together. His Bible calls them, He sets them aside as apostles. They are 12 of a multitude of disciples that the Bible says Jesus had at the stage. And He says to these 12, He says, guys, we're going to eat a meal together. They're having a specific meal. It's a Passover meal. Once again, we don't have time to get into everything that that represents. But if you go back to where Moses was and um, bringing the people out of Egypt, they had a very specific meal. And this is they're having that meal again. So Jesus, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread from that meal. And after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat. This is my body. He took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus comes and he, he demonstrates to us, he, he says that there is this meal. And when we talk about the Lord's Supper, this is what we are talking about. When we're talking about the Lord's Supper, we're not talking about sustenance for our bodies. We're talking about sustenance for our spirits. When we're talking about the Lord's Supper, we're not talking about the meal and the stuff around it. We're talking about the heart of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And often when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we read these passages. That we almost stop at these passages. And most of us, if we are followers of Jesus, we understand this. We understand that as we eat, there is something about the body of Christ that is represented, but more than represented. In the same way that baptism is a symbol, and baptism represents us dying with Christ and coming alive with Christ, it is more than just a symbolic action. There is actually something in the spirit that shifts within our baptism. But baptism changes something. Baptism is more than just a, a nice symbolism, more than just a nice action we do with this, that holds sort of a, a picture to the people around us, that there's actually an essence to baptism. And Jesus comes and he says, when we eat the bread, and in John chapter 6, he actually says to the people around him, he says, if you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be part of me. And then the Bible says something interesting, that day many of his disciples departed. From him. Many of those who'd been following realized that for them to surrender to the point of actually bringing Christ on board with him was a hard thing for them to do. As I said, we don't have time today to get into John chapter 6 as such, but I want to encourage you to go and read that, go and see what Jesus says there about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Something that is important for us is that when it comes to the eating and the drinking, there is an element of mystery involved. It's one of those things that this side of eternity, we're never fully going to understand, just like baptism. Even yesterday when we were teaching baptism, I always encourage people, we don't get baptized because we understand enough. Because if we wait until we fully understand baptism, guess what? We will never get baptized because we will never understand baptism this side of eternity. I understand baptism better now than I did two or three weeks or two months. Every time as we grow closer to Christ, I understand baptism a little bit more 
But I'm never going to understand baptism fully. There's a mystery part of it. There's something about the spiritual dimension that happens in baptism for what it represents that as much as I understand baptism, I'm never going to understand it. And none of us are on this side of eternity. There is a mystery. And so we get baptism not, but we get baptized not because we understand baptism. We get baptized because Christ invites us to baptism. And we do it out of obedience, not because we understand. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek to understand. It doesn't mean that there isn't a place for teaching around baptism. It's just that our understanding is never going to be complete. There is an element of mystery. We find an element of that mystery in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So Paul's writing to this church in Corinth, the same Paul who met and on the first day of the week, and the guy fell out and he died and he picked him back up again. And he's writing to this church in Corinth because he'd been going around planting churches, which is everything that Luke tells us in the book of Acts. And then from time to time, he writes to one or two of these churches again. He gives them instruction and encouragement. And in 1 Corinthians, he's giving a lot of encouragement, but also a lot of correction. He's helping them to set some things in order that have gone wrong a little bit. And in the context, actually, of idolatry, he gives us these two or three verses here, which helps us understand something about the cup and the bread. He's not trying to make a point here so much about the bread and the cup, but as we kind of just zoom into these verses, it tells us so much about Paul's understanding of the mystery of the bread and the cup. And as I said, within the context of not going our way to idolatry, he says the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not a participation of the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. And the word that we have there as participate is, a, is an interesting word. Some of you who've studied Scripture a little bit would have heard the word koinonia, fellowship, gathering, being together. It literally means sharing in and being a part of. And so this is part of the mystery that is before us that Jesus said, Paul says here that when we partake of the bread in some mysterious ways, we are part of the body of Christ. We partake in the body of Christ. And we have a part in this isn't just something we do. There's a, a mystery. There's a power. There is something central to our faith that happens when we eat together from the body of Christ. Similarly, he says that when we drink, is it not a participation? Are we not having communion with koinonia, fellowship? Aren't we, in a sense, blending with and becoming part of? Some people take this to the extreme and kind of actually think that when you eat, it physically becomes meat and blood in your mind. I don't think that's the implication here, but something does happen. Not necessarily with the bread and with the wine that we drink, but something happens in terms of our participation in what Christ has done. So Paul writes this in this verse, and he, he's encouraging them. He's, he's saying within the context of eating a whole bunch of other stuff, when we eat, we participate, we become a part of it. 
And so for us as Christians, when we stop and when we realize that the cross is at the very center of everything we believe, that every time we eat and we drink, there is a participation, there is a part of, there is something of what Jesus did in that moment that becomes part of who we are. And we have fellowship with the cross. Interesting, he also says then, because there is one bread, we who are many are, are one body. We're going to see in this next bit that we're going to read that there's this beautiful synergy in a sense even. That there was the body of Christ, which is the physical body of Christ, which was broken on the cross. That he was, became man incarnate, this, this God who came to dwell within a human body born of a virgin. And that body was broken. But we also have this incredible parallel that his body is us sitting here today. His body is the gathering of believers that come together. And so he says here, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. Because there is one bread that us gathered here is the fact that believers, the followers of Christ, we're one body and we should strive for that. We should work towards that. We should endeavor to be one body. It doesn't mean we're always going to meet in one place all the time. That's not the implication at all. But there's a heart of oneness. There's an understanding that when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. When one part of the body, body, one part of the body prospers, the whole body prospers. There's an understanding that we are united together in one, even if we are separated geographically for whatever practical or logistical reasons they may be. Even if we are all working a little bit, maybe the best example I can use here is something like a, a large army. Let's take the United States Army. And let's actually take, for those of us who are technical about this, the entire military force, the Navy, the Air Force, the Army, the Marines, different parts. But you know, when they go to invade, when they want to make war against another country, we understand that we are one. Yes, we have different functions. We have different roles within this army. Some may be drone pilots and some may be foot soldiers. Some may be in charge of the tanks. Some may be in charge of refueling the tanks. We all have different roles within this. But if, if we don't understand that if we're not taking hands, working together, we're not going to win this war. We're all going to suffer. There's a oneness and God has called us all, I totally believe, to different functions, to different roles. I love the fact that we can have a variety of different churches in the city because I also love the fact that I can often meet with those different pastors and we can share together, we can pray together, and we can say what God is stirring us to do. And we can fully embrace that. And something that I just sense God stirring just with a going, just the last while I was actually sitting on my roof, painting my roof. Shingi came and painted the first layer for me. Thank you very much, Shingi. And then I had to paint the second layer and I was sitting on the roof, just praying. It was beautiful. It's quiet up there. No interruptions. No cell phones that can ring because it's going to get probably fall off the roof the way I work with my cell phone. So I'm sitting and I just sense God speaking to me. And he says, he wants us to reconnect with a purpose. That God is holding before us in the next few weeks and months. We'll be just working through that, praying through that bit by bit, stepping up and saying, God, you have a purpose. But one thing that I can put... I've already mentioned it for us this morning. A purpose said it to the guys doing life encounters. Some of them only 
came to faith in a sense yesterday. They are disciple makers. God wants us to be investing, building into the lives of the people around us, every one of us. So I want to hold it before you. I spoke about life encounter, but I'm actually being serious. I believe God wants us to be focused and to celebrate every time we are able to connect someone to Jesus. Every single time someone who is far from Jesus can have an encounter with him. God wants that purpose. You know, our small groups, we're going to begin to speak to our small groups again a little bit. Every one of our small groups, we're going to start thinking a little bit, how do we grow what God has given us here? We're going to celebrate every time one of us, we're going to put names on a list somewhere where we can pray for one another's friends. Every single time one of those people decide to put their faith in Jesus as a small group, we're going to celebrate that. We're going to live for that moment. We're going to understand that as a small group, we don't only come together. We do that as well. We don't only come together to support one another. We also come together because there are souls that are important to Christ, and we're going to reach out. Whether it is at funerals, or whether it is at weddings, whether it is at parties, or whether it is in our day-to-day lives, we're going to be saying, God, how can I reach out? How can I bring the gift? Say to the guys yesterday, I want you, this is not what I'm going to say. This This is just a normal, plain baseball. But imagine this was a check for a million rand. Imagine. That would be pretty cool. I wish I had one. I don't. But imagine I did. Some of you are like, what's a check? This is a million rand right here. Imagine I said to you, hey, guess what? I've got a whole bag full of them. Every single one of you, you can take a check for a million rand on one condition. You have to go give it to someone else. I wonder how many of us would walk out there and leave the bag here untouched. Well, how many of us would come and say, that's actually a pretty cool gift. I can think of someone who can do with a million rand. How much more value is eternal life? And yet somehow we don't think that way. We're like, oh, it's just eternal life. Maybe I'll do that another day. But if it was a million rand, we'd be like, yes. Can't wait to go and give my friend, my dad, my colleague, my coworker. The guy lives in the commune. I can't wait to give him a million bucks. How about if we can't wait to give them eternal life? If we can't wait to give them the gift that supersedes everything else that we can have in this world, a relationship with Christ, the lover of our soul. And I'm totally off topic, but that's okay. It's important. I believe God wants us to reconnect with purpose is what I'm trying to say. And a part of that purpose will be seeing souls come to Christ, seeing people grow in Jesus. So Paul comes and he He's telling them about a a participation in the blood, in the body of Christ. And then he goes on in the next chapter. And then he commends them about a bunch of stuff in the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 11. He says, you guys are doing this stuff really well. Keep on doing it. And then he gets to verse 17. And he says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together... It is not for better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. A couple of things I want us to see here. The first one is 
there is a coming together. When you come together, when you come together, when you come together. Three times he says it. When you come together, and then he says something to them. But when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper. Their thinking is they are coming together and eating the Lord's Supper. And he says, that which you are eating together is not the Lord's Supper. You are definitely eating together. You are coming together to eat. What I want us to see here, apart from the fact that they come together to eat, is that they actually come together to eat a meal. We'll see this in a moment now as well. They're not just coming together to eat like we're going to do in a moment, a small cracker of bread and a little I want to say a shot of grape juice, a little tot glass of grape juice. That's not what's going. They're actually coming together for a meal. But Paul says, when you guys are coming together as a church, I've got news for you. You are not coming together around the Lord's Supper, around the Lord's table. And he says, why? He says in verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. See here, how and what we eat is a direct reflection of our love for the church. Then if you guys have ever thought about it this way, but Paul says, Do you love the church? No, you despise the church. Why do I say you despise the church? Because of what and how you eat when you come together. You're not demonstrating a love for the church. You're not demonstrating, and he takes it further even, we'll see in a moment, you are not having a reverence for this thing that is happening here. One of the things that I I know God is stirring in my heart more and more, and we prayed about it on Monday night, at first Monday prayer, is that we would again develop a reverence for the things that are holy. Paul is saying to them, when you come together, this is not just an ordinary meal. As a matter of fact, if you're very hungry, if you're needing to fill your tummy, don't you have your own home? You can go and eat it. This is not the place we come to eat ourselves to the full. This is not the place where we come to jump to the front of the queue because right now I'm so hungry. Yes, we're having a meal. Yes, we're actually having food. Yes, there's a lot of wine. There's enough wine for us to get drunk on. But if you're doing that, you are missing the point that I'm not commending you in it. He even goes a lot further in a few bits here. It's not just another meal. You see, when we come together around the Lord's table, we are coming to the cross of Jesus Christ. We are coming to the one thing that has been central to church throughout the ages. There have been a whole other bunch of other things that sort of have remained the same, but the one thing that hasn't changed very clearly. You know, people have argued about baptism. How should baptism look? It's looked different over the years. One thing that's never looked different is our eating and our drinking. It's something that's holy. It's something that the Holy Spirit has watched over, that He has guarded, that He has protected, that has been absolutely central. And I wonder how often we come to it and we don't have reverence for what is happening. So a part of me loves being in an old church like this because it hopefully instills a little bit of reverence in us. It reminds us that coming to Jesus isn't the same as just going to a shopping mall. Coming to Jesus isn't the same as just 
going towards the next rugby match. Coming together around the Lord's table isn't the same as going to a Friday night choir with our buddies. It's different. And Paul goes on, and I want us to just, as I said, slow down a little bit. And I know we're going to be slightly over time today. My apologies for that. Actually, Anton's apologies for that. I'm kidding. But it's not just another meal. It's something that's holy. It's something that we should be reverent about. Because he carries on. And so he says, I'm not commending you this. I'm, I'm not going to say keep doing what you're doing. I'm not saying well done. As a matter of fact, not well done. Badly done. The way that you guys are eating and drinking demonstrates to me that you do not love the body of Christ. You do not love the church. As a matter of fact, the word he uses here is you despise it and you humiliate the church. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There is a remembrance of the cross of Christ that takes place. You see, when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we're taking a moment to come and stand still at the single most holy moment in the history of mankind. One of my favorite psalms is, Matt Redmond wrote a song about it, where the psalmist says, you know, when I come into your presence, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, he says, let me not forget to tremble. I come before him with joy and trembling. We come before the Lord, we come before this King of kings, and He is awesome and He is majestic, but we're also filled with the fear of the holiness of God. I believe God is wanting to bring something of a reverence for the holiness of God back to our communion. I think He's wanting to restore something that the early church understood. You see, the early church came together from house to house. That's one of the reasons why small groups are important to us. Because we can actually come together and have a meal together. We can come together and we can share in one another's lives. There's so much that happens in that small group context, which for us is central to who we are as a church. But one of the things is we come and we have a meal, but I want to put something in that. We don't just have a meal together. I want to ask you, especially those of you who are leaders, begin to pray with me. What does this look like, God? We don't just want to come together to have a meal. We want to come together to have a holy meal. A meal that is set aside. A meal that is different. A meal that isn't just another buddy bry on a Friday. A meal in which we are partaking, in which we are partners, in which we have kononia, in which we have fellowship with the body of Christ. God, what does that practically look like for us? And then he says, you proclaim. There's a, a proclamation that happens in the Spirit. Is we're declaring that Jesus has died and implicit in the way that this is written, that he's also risen again. His death and his resurrection, we celebrate, we remember it. Then verse 27, and it's like a big warning label. Sometimes we miss this, that the Lord's Supper, this meal actually comes with a warning label. 
here a little bit is the warning label. It says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is crazy. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. He says some of you right now are weak. You're struggling with sickness. Some of you actually have already died. And you know why you died? You died because you ate wrong. Not because you ate the wrong type of food and you got cancer or whatever. No. You ate with the wrong attitude, with the wrong reverence, with the wrong respect for this that you were eating. You didn't understand that when you came to eat this meal, you weren't just eating a meal. When you came to drink this cup, you weren't just drinking some liquid fruit. You were drinking liquid fruit in the physical, yes, but in the spiritual, something very different was happening. I believe God wants us to re-embrace a reverence for that which is holy around our meals. I mentioned here that the body represents both the physical body of Christ as well as the body here. We see that as well in what the example Paul gives there. He says, you're not respecting the body, and the way you're not respecting the body is you're being gluttonous and letting the guy next to you go hungry. You're coming with your big fancy fillet steak, and the other guy, you know, he's got his two-minute noodles. Jesus. Paul says, that's all right. He says, if you want to eat that, he actually says that in as many words, if you want to eat that in that way, go do that at home. There's nothing wrong with it at home. But when we come together here, when we have our meal together here, let's not try and get one over another. Let's not have the best meal here while the guy next to me is hungry. He says, you do that, you are despising, you humiliating the weak and the poor in your midst. He says, we don't do that. Anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are ill. Some have weak and ill and some have died. But we, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So God invites us. He says, I like this. We can self-examine. Then if you guys remember when we had varsity or something, from time to time you get to mark your own test paper. Jesus, in a sense, says you can do that right here. You can judge yourself around the body of Christ, or you can let me judge you. I know which one I would rather take. He says, when you come and you eat and when you drink, are you self-examining? Are you judging yourself? Now, the, the guilt and the shame within us says, Ooh, we must judge ourselves. The way in which we eat in a worthy manner is if I have no sin in me, if I'm sorted, if I've got it all together, then I can have of the bread and the wine. That's exactly what he's not saying. Because the point is we cannot have it together without what the bread and the wine represents. It's the body of Christ. It's the blood of Christ. 
that makes it okay. We can never have it okay. So I want to dispel that right there, that it's not, is there sin in my life? Am I struggling? Have I sinned? That's not how we're judging ourselves. It's not, am I perfect in the eyes of God? Because if that was the question, none of us would ever be able to eat or to drink. So we're not examining ourselves for perfection. We're examining ourselves for surrender. Where am I not surrendered to Christ? You see, there's nothing wrong with having sin in my life when I eat and when I drink, because that's why I eat and I drink, because there is sin in my life. What there is wrong with, if there is sin in my life and I'm saying, God, I'm not going to let you in there, then I'm doing it in an unholy manner. If I'm saying, God, there's sin in my life and I'm okay with it, I'm going to keep that. In other words, Jesus, you died to take away the sin of the world, to take away my sin, but I don't actually care. I'm just going to keep my sin. Then we're doing it in an unworthy way. Then there's no reverence for what we are doing. Then we're missing the whole point. But if there is God, there is sin in my life. God, I'm struggling with this, God. God, I don't know how to sort this. God, I can't make this right. But God, you can. And that's why I'm coming to the cross, the bread, and the wine. God, would you make it right? Then we are coming in exactly the right way. So it's not about being absent of sin. It's not about being free from sin. It's about being absent and free from pride. It's about saying, God, would you, as far as I'm aware of the sin in my life, would you come and clean it? Would you come and wash it? Would you come and redeem it? We eat of the bread and, and drink of the cup in an unworthy manner. That doesn't mean in a sinfulness within us, but in our heart towards the cross. That's an unworthy manner. I think another way in which we come in an unworthy manner is we come without the right reverence. Now, reverence is a hard thing because you can be reverent and smile at the same time. You can be reverent and in a good mood. Reverent doesn't mean somber and sulking means there's a respect. There's an understanding that what I'm doing here is a heavy thing. It's not a light thing. It's not something that I just do and, and not do. But I come together. I wonder how many of us would we say that I, I'm coming to communion. You know the church that I grew up in? They in a sense got this right. This part of it. There was a reverence for communion. Communion Sunday was a special Sunday. Communion Sunday wasn't just another Sunday. Communion Sunday was a special celebration. It was something we celebrated. And I think when I read in the book of Acts here, I think the early church, it was something that they celebrated. That we would come together. I was listening to a famous speaker recently, actually speaking on a similar topic. And very much the same topic, actually. He said this. He said, you know, if church puts on a bulletin that he's coming to speak, a whole bunch of people would arrive to come and listen to him. If the church puts on a bulletin that there's communion Sunday, the same people are probably just going to come and always come. Surely that's something that's wrong within us. Surely that's something that's missing within the modern church that we are drawn to speakers or artists or specific events happening within. 
but we're not drawn to the body of Christ. We are not drawn to communion. We're not drawn to, as we see the early church, they came together to eat. It was a highlight. It was something simple. It was something reverent. It was something that Paul says, if you don't get this right, some of you will die. That's how much value Paul placed within it and upon it. He says, and so we judge ourselves. God, here is the cup, here is the wine. And God, I'm judging myself. I know I am sinful and I am guilty. I'm bringing that to the cross. Jesus, would you come and take that away? Much better option, he says here, than letting God judge us. If we self-examine ourselves. So then, my brothers, when you come together, here we see it again. When you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Don't come here famished, run to the front. No, it's not the point. That's not why we're coming together. This meal is not about the sustenance. It's about something so much more. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. But other things I will give directions when I come. He says, the other stuff can wait. This can't wait. This is so important, it cannot wait. I need to set this right in this letter right now. And so, we don't know what this is going to look like within small groups. Some of you already do this. Maybe it's just a small change, just a moment of just stopping and quiet reflection before we eat, whatever it may be. I don't know exactly. What I do know is God wants to bring back a reverence for His table. What I also do see here is that the church came together to eat. So we're going to begin to work into our program that from time to time, we're going to give opportunities for us to come together on the first day of the week to eat. As an invitation for those who want to come and eat together. We don't know exactly what that's going to look like. We're going to start on the 24th of April with a braai. Hopefully it's the weather's a little bit better, but we'll have some braai things out here. And we want to invite you to come and just braai with us. But also understand that it's not just a braai that we're having. We're not just coming together to care because it's a nice idea. There is something about the body of Christ that is only manifest within that space. There's something about the body of Christ that we can't experience anywhere else except as in that space. And so as we come together, come with joy, come with smiles, come with laugh, but come with reverence. Come with saying, God, we want to eat and partake of your body. We want to invite you, Jesus, to come and dwell with us in this meal and just as in baptism there's a part of God I can only experience in baptism, there's a part of God we can only experience in the Lord's Supper. And so it might change. We might a year from now look at that and say, you know, our hearts were so right, but the method was so wrong. I believe God will be okay with that. Just come to God and say, God, we want to learn to eat, to look, to live what this looks like. So we're not going to start, it's not going to be every week. I don't think it's necessary to do that. I do think it's important for us to just create space to start eating together. Hopefully you do that in your small groups, even if it's a packet of chips sometimes. Students, maybe that's all we can afford. But as a church to come together. I'd like us to watch a, just a music video just around us. Just a little song, just let it minister to you. Just as an aside, it's the same guys who are coming to do the 
worship weekend with us who recorded this recently. Just the timing was really great. They released it this week. And while we're watching this, if we can pass out the elements of communion, I'd like us to have communion together. We're not going to have a whole meal together just for practicalities, but we are going to take a moment to stand still at the cross of Christ, His body, His blood. Thanks, Zachary. Let's pray that for us. Set a place for you at the table. We make space and room. Come and eat with us. Come and eat with us. You provide the food.
Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Christian Church. We believe that you enjoyed your time with us, establishing God's kingdom and His glory in your life. For more info, call us on 012-362-1363. Email us, pretoria at shofaronline.org. Browse our website, www.shofaronline.org. Or like us on facebook.com forward slash shofarpretoria.org.